next presidential election is apparently fast approaching and will be here very soon. And as the time approaches and as we think about candidates, there are always a number of factors that people take into account as they think about who they will vote for. And apparently, historically, in the United States, one of the factors that has played a part in this is actually height. Two authors found that between 1789 and 2008, the taller candidate won in 58% of elections. The taller, the better, it seems, if you want to run for president. But it's not only height that matters in our perception of people. I've seen numerous studies over the years that says in order to sort of climb the ladder towards power as a, a CEO or a leader of an organization, often it's important to be what at least our culture would consider outwardly attractive. An outwardly sort of beauty or, or being handsome would be necessary in order to, or helpful at least, in climbing the ladder. So tall and attractive would seem to be the right combination. Outwardly impressive, the desire. And last week we saw that God's people were desiring a king. Someone who would lead them. The question is, what sort of king would they want? Tall and handsome, perhaps? But would that, would that really be the king that they needed? And for us, as we think about a king who would rule over us, what sort of king are we looking for? What sort of king do we need? That's what we'll see today when we turn to 1 Samuel again. So if you have a Bible, turn to me to 1 Samuel chapter 9. Today you'll find 1 Samuel chapter 9 on page 231 in the Bibles near you page 231. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible, open up a Bible app so you can see the text in front of you as we work our way through this. Today we'll cover both chapter 9 and chapter 10, but we'll read it in three different units throughout our time together. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. We're in chapter 9. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. I'll mention those numbers throughout our time together. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room, there's a table, stack of Bibles there, a sign that says free Bible. So please Grab one of those and take it with you this morning as our gift to you. So we're continuing our series in 1 Samuel that we're calling In Search of a King. And last week in chapter 8, we saw the elders, the leaders of Israel, came to Samuel, who was the leader of Israel at the time in this role of judge, and they said, we want a king. Give us a human king. Now Samuel had seen it as a rejection of himself, but then the Lord had told Samuel that they were not in fact rejecting you, but they're rejecting me, the Lord who had saved them, the Lord who had been faithful to them as their king. So the Lord instructed Samuel first to, to warn them of what this king will really do to them, but they continued to demand a king, and so then the Lord said to Samuel, give them a king. That's where we find it this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. Son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bechareth, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And pass through the hill country of Ephraim, pass through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. Pass through the land of Shalim, 
they were not there. And they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. He said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true, so now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. And Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no pre- present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Firmly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And they went up the hills to the city. They met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, he is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He's come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. The day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. And Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me. Where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. In the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. For whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you, for all your father's house? Samuel answered, Am I not a Benjamite, the least of the tribes of Israel? Is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited. Who were about, there were about 30 persons. Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. When they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he's passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. This morning in our passage, we'll see this emphasis. Trust your God, who provides a king for his rebellious people, and is always working in their lives. 
Trust your God who provides a king for his rebellious people and is always working in their lives. And we'll look at our passage in three different scenes that we'll see in the passage. So first we'll see the king is unaware. Second, we'll see the king is anointed. And the third, the king is proclaimed. So the king is unaware, the king is anointed, the king is proclaimed. And we'll spend the majority of our time on the first, so don't despair. We're going to spend a long time on the first one. So first we see the king is unaware in verses 1 through 27. In verses 1 and 2, we're given this introduction to this man named Kish. And we're told that he comes from an obscure line, from the Benjamin, the smallest tribe of Israel. We're told that he had a son named Saul. Now Saul's name literally means asked for. So those who knew the language, everything would hear the word Saul, would, would hear that meaning with it. So asked for would remind them that they had asked for a king. And this was the king that they had asked for. So Saul is from an apparently insignificant family line, but he is from a wealthy family. And we're told he's handsome. More handsome than all the other in Israel. And he's tall. Taller than anyone else. So tall, handsome, and wealthy. So he's outwardly impressive. He looks like a king. If you wanted a king, this would be the sort of person that you would choose. This is what the people of Israel were looking for. They had said they, they wanted a king to go before them. A king who would represent them and fight their battles for them. Who better than a handsome, tall, impressive king? But then the story then takes an interesting, sort of strange turn as we're told that Saul's father's donkeys were lost. And so Saul's dad asked him to go and search for them, and Saul was willing to go and do that. We see that they go and search from area to area, but they couldn't find the donkeys. Wherever they went, the donkeys weren't there, so eventually Saul was ready to give up, concerned that his, his dad would now be concerned about him if he hasn't returned yet. And so he says to his servant, we should just go back home. We begin to see more about Saul. For though he was wealthy, handsome, and tall, evidently he's not a very good shepherd. I mean, donkeys are pretty large animals, and yet he was unable to find them, unable to track them down. I'm not exactly sure what you call a shepherd of donkeys, what the technical term is, but, but he's just not a very efficient, effective shepherd. This is intended to be a, a contrast to several key other leaders in the history of God's people. All of them have been shepherds. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and then very soon we'll see David. All of them also shepherds, but effective, faithful shepherds. Saul was ready to give up and go home, but his servant suggests, well, we should go talk to the man of God who lives nearby, and maybe he'll give us some guidance. So even though this was only a few miles from where Saul lives, he seems almost unaware there is this man of God there, this one who's called the seer or the prophet Samuel. Even though we were told all the way back in 1 Samuel 3, verse 20, all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And now for decades, Samuel has been both the spokesman for God and the leader of the people. Everyone knew who Samuel was. Saul was open to the suggestion of his servant to, to go to this prophet, 
But, but Saul says, well, what will we pay him? That was the, the, kind of the custom of the day, to bring something to pay. And so, so Saul says, I have, I have nothing to bring. Fortunately, the servant has something. He says, I have some coinage. We'll, we'll use that for the payments. And we see that Saul is basically being led by his servant rather than being the leader. On their way to the city, we see that they end up at this well, and there they encounter some young women. These young women were on their way to draw water. And for, for God's people, familiar with the history of God's people, encounters at wells were big moments. Big things happened at wells in the history of God's people, with Isaac, with Jacob, and with Moses. So it, it kind of opens up our attention, what's going to happen here at the well this time? So then they go to the well, and they say to the, to the women, is, is the seer, is the prophet there? And they explain that, yes, he is. In fact, he's just ahead of them. If you hurry, you can actually catch him today before this meal that he's going to have with a group of people. In verse 14, we're told that as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel actually coming toward them. So then the narrator takes us back to, to an encounter that Samuel had with the Lord the day before. As the Lord had told him that, that a man from Benjamin was going to come and that Samuel was to anoint him as the prince or as the leader of God's people. And that this one he would anoint would save God's people from the Philistines. Then we jump back into the moment, verse 17. As Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, this is the man I spoke with you about. We see that as Saul approaches, he says to Samuel, where is the house of the seer? So Saul didn't recognize Samuel. So, so keep in mind, as I said, he's the most famous person in Israel. Saul walks right up to him, and as if he's kind of looking around him, can, can you tell me where the seer's house is? This would be something like if, you know, a few years ago you, you had gone out to, not, not anymore, but if you went out to Gillette Stadium, let's say, to Patriot Place, and you wanted to meet the tall, handsome quarterback, Tom Brady. And so you start wandering around, and you're walking down the hall, and you walk, and this guy, this tall, handsome guy walks up to you, who has these big rings on all of his fingers, and you say to him, can you point me to Tom Brady? And you're kind of looking over his shoulder, and he's like, yeah, yeah, that's me. That's what's happening here. Samuel is the most famous person, and yet Saul has no clue. He doesn't recognize him. He's unaware. Samuel then identifies himself, invites Saul to join him for a meal that, that's been prepared ahead of time. Tells him tomorrow he'll send him off and he'll answer his questions. But then Samuel says, look at verse 20. He says this to Saul, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? So a very significant and flattering statement is made to Saul. Saul doesn't know all that it means, but he responds in a humble way, who am I? You should speak to me in that way. So Samuel took Saul to the banquet. He's seated at the head of the table. Samuel had previously set aside a particular piece of meat that was prepared especially for, Sam, for Saul, and it was given to him. They share in the meal. Saul then is a place prepared for him to sleep overnight on the roof. And the next day, Samuel prepares to send him off. So as we're introduced to Saul in our text, we really get a mixed honestly complicated picture of what he's like. He is wealthy and handsome and tall, just like the people wanted. He looks the part of a king. But he's also a really poor shepherd. In several ways, seems to be 
at the very least unaware, if not inept, and perhaps even just spiritually blind. So as we initially follow along, we think, this is surely the king. But as the story moves along, we begin to wonder, is this the king? Is this the king that God's people need? We saw last week, and we're continuing to see how God is giving his people what they so desire that, in fact, they demand it from God. They're convinced that this is exactly what they need. They're convinced that it's good for them. So they say, give us a human king. We must have that. And friends, sometimes it is an act of loving discipline where God gives to his people what we so desire, what we won't let go of, so that ultimately he will teach us, show us, that that's not absolutely what we need that it can't ultimately satisfy. So friends, because of that, we want to be wise and discerning, praying that God would even shape our desires. The natural default is to, to believe that our desi- desires are always right and good. That whatever I desire, it must be for my best. And, and that if I don't have a desire fulfilled, then something is awry in the world. So if God loves me, he must fulfill all of my desires. But friend, if you consider the possibility that Our desires are often awry, ungodly. Sometimes they're good desires. And yet it's just not God's timing or God's plan for us. So wise Christian prays and we say, God, would you not only fulfill my desire, but even more than that, would you give me the desires? Give me the desires that are right and best in line with your word and your way for me. We saw last week the people of Israel demanded a king, and so doing, they were rejecting their God. He had been their king. He said, but we don't want you. We want a human king. And yet today, we see that God is still committed to his unfaithful people. They are unfaithful to him, but he is faithful to them. Notice how he consistently refers to his people as my people. He doesn't now call this rebellious people those people. But still, he calls them my people. He is committed to them and to his covenant with them, even though they are rejecting him. So committed that he says of Saul in verse 16, he will save my people from the Philistines. So God was committed to preserving and protecting, saving his people. Even as they rejected him, he would still be faithful to them. This is what our God is like. Faithful to save. Faithful to keep. Faithful to sustain. In the coming of the perfect King Jesus, he came not for faithful people, for none of us are faithful, but he came for unfaithful people like us. He, the only one who's ever been perfectly faithful, died in the place of the unfaithful so that his faithfulness could be credited to us. And in this great salvation, he now brings us into God's own people. We're referred to now, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, of all Christians. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are now his people. 
He would say of us, my people, and that means you, friend, if you're a Christian. We are his. And he is faithful. He will be faithful to you. He'll be faithful, faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him. So friend, trust in your faithful God. As we look at our passage today, we also want to notice how all of these seemingly random circumstances work together. One apparent coincidence leads to another, leads to another. So Saul is searching for these donkeys, going from place to place, and when they finally give up, they just happen to be near where the prophet is. And as they make their way to where the prophet is, they just happen to be at the well at just the right time when these women come. And when they ask, is the prophet here? They say, in fact, he is at just that moment. In fact, as they walk, they don't have to look for the prophet. They walk right into Samuel. For God is at work in the very circumstances, every one of these circumstances, God is sort of mysteriously, by his hand, guiding these steps. And this is what Christians have historically referred to as the providence of God. One author describes providence as that wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way God has of ruling his world, sustaining his people, and is doing it frequently over, under, around, through, or in spite of the most common stuff of our lives. God was working through these circumstances of lost donkeys, the circumstances even of Saul's ineptitude, to intersect at just the right time with Samuel. Friends, so is true in our lives as well. And God is so wise and kind and sovereign that he even works for our good through, through our own missteps as well and our mistakes. So friend, you see that God is at work in the circumstances of your days. What seems to be just an encouraging coincidence is no coincidence at all. But God brought you there. God initiated this conversation to put you in the right place at the right time. God protected you in so many ways that we're not even aware of by his hand of providence. Now, we're in the midst of circumstances. We don't typically immediately see how God had woven those things together. But sometimes, with a little bit of time and reflection, we can see, wow, what looked to be just a coincidence, how God brought us into that place at that time for this reason. But it's also true that much that happens in this world, we will not fully understand until the final day in the new heavens and the new earth. And then we'll see clearly. God will show us all how he's been at work in the circumstances of our lives. But friend, until then, trust your God's saving character. Trust his promises. Also trust his providence. So we see the king is unaware. But then second, we see the king is anointed. Chapter 10, verses 1 and following. Look down to chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord, Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel. 
We'll meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. They will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there's a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. And then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? When he finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? He said, To seek the donkeys. When he saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. So we see that the next morning, Samuel anointed Saul to be prince over Israel. And he says that Saul will reign over the people of the Lord and save them from the hand of the surrounding enemies. With Saul's credit, this is a truly shocking event. Israel has not had a king before. He's being anointed as the king, completely unexpected. His life is changing in just a few hours. And understanding those difficulties, Samuel says to Saul, there are going to be some signs that will happen, and these will verify what I've just told you. I can imagine this was a strange thing for you to hear, so so these things will happen, showing you that it's true. So he tells him that Saul would go on, and this happened. He, He would meet two men in a particular place, and they would tell him that the donkeys have been found, and now his father is worried about it. He would go further at the Oak of Tabor. He would meet three men, and they would give him two loaves of bread. As you mentioned, if you, if you remember, he was, they were without bread, so God would provide them these two loaves of bread. Then he would come to another place, Gibeah Elohim, and there there would be a, a Philistine garrison, meaning a group of these uh, neighboring uh, opposition of their forces nearby as well. And there he would also meet a group of prophets. And the Spirit of the Lord would come upon Saul, and he would also prophesy himself. We see verse 9 that then Sam, Saul let, when Saul left Samuel, God gave him another heart. And then all these signs played out exactly as Samuel had told him they would. Saul even prophesied. The people around were surprised by this as well. And then finally, Saul returned to his family, and there his, his uncle asked where he'd been. He said he had seen Samuel, and he asked him what Samuel had told him. And he told him only about the donkeys, not about the kingdom as well. So we see that God graciously gave these signs to Saul to give him confidence that this anointing was authentic. So these signs are are proof. You can see these, you can experience these to authenticate what I've just told you, that you are now the prince, the king over Israel. 
And we see that God gave him the Spirit as he had promised. Verse 10, the Spirit of God rushed upon him. Now, upon reading this, we might wonder, well, so is this the Spirit of God coming on Saul? Is this what we would think of today as salvation, of conversion? For the Spirit of God comes on a person who becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. So is that what's happening here with Saul? This is not what we would experience today on this side of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We repent and believe in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit dwells in every single Christian. But what's happening here is the empowerment we do see in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, where God uniquely empowered certain people for certain roles. So he would would empower judges, at times prophets. So the Spirit would come upon them for this particular task. But sadly, what we're going to see going forward, that Saul did not have a truly transformed new heart. That will become clearer in the weeks ahead. But God did give Saul empowerment. But even here, as God empowers him, it seems that Saul misses an opportunity right before him to act. Verse 5, we're told this Philistine garrison are, are near. These enemies they've been fighting against are right here. And Samuel had said, look down at verse 7, it says, now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do to you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. This is the Spirit's going to come upon you. God will be with you to do what your hand finds to do. And God had told Saul, he was being anointed, that he would save God's people from their enemies. So here's this. Enemies right there. He's been told, your very role is to save God's people from their enemies. Samuel says, when it comes upon you, do what you find to do. Kind of an open invitation, not explicit, but seemingly implied. Here's an opportunity for you to fight for your people. But here, Saul doesn't. Seems to be a missed opportunity. We do see that God graciously provided those signs for Saul. Granted, this is a unique moment in the history of God's people. So he doesn't provide for us those sorts of signs. Friends, make no mistake, as Christians, God has given us signs, real signs in history to give us confidence in our faith in God. So what are the signs that we we share as Christians? The sign is the historical life of Jesus of Nazareth. But really no one in the world debates, was there really a person who was influential, a key teacher in the history of the world, no matter what they believe, Really, no one debates, was there this person, Jesus of Nazareth? It's a sign for us. But in addition to that, we have the the cross of Jesus Christ is a sign given to us. And likewise, even even opponents grant that there was this cross where Jesus of Nazareth dies on a cross. But but then the sign given for us is not only did he die, but he was raised triumphant. For there there is no body to be found of Jesus. There is no tomb in which he is laid. There's only an empty tomb. So those are the signs given for all Christians at all times to give us confidence for life in the world. We don't have a a faith that's disconnected from history. But in a real place, at a real moment, real person, Jesus of Nazareth, walked the earth. Perfect life, a sinless life. Jesus the King went to the cross to die in the place of sinners like us. Jesus the King was raised triumphant. So friend, 
remember that these signs are for you, for us, to encourage our faith. And friend, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you would give part of your Sunday to join us. And I wonder how you've thought about those things that we as Christians understand to be signs for us. Did you consider them to be valid or reasonable, the, the, the life of Jesus of Nazareth? His cross, have you explored what historians say about that? And even the resurrection of Jesus. I, I wouldn't be surprised if you're not persuaded in the resurrection at this point. But we're all left to question what really happened. If he didn't rise, there are a number of questions that we would have to answer if he didn't rise. And so friend, we hope that you feel comfortable here to explore who Jesus is. And if you'd like to talk any about those questions, I would love to do that. Or a friend or family member, if they, you came with them, they would love to tell you more as well. For those of us who are Christians, now the Spirit dwells in every single one of us. In an ongoing way, the Spirit is in you, friend, and He empowers us for life in His kingdom. The Apostle Peter put it, puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God provides, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. It's a very important teaching that Peter gives us, that, that all Christians are given opportunities, gifts, to use in the kingdom work, the spreading of the good news, loving of neighbor, impacting those around us. And he says, importantly, when, when we're doing this, we're, we're serving with the strength that we have, but the strength that we have is actually from God. The Spirit empowers us for the work that he calls us to. So friend, do you see that God is empowering you if you're a Christian? Hear it now for the work that's before you. He has work for you to do connected to his kingdom in this city, on your campus, in your neighborhood, in the life of this church. So many of you serve so faithfully, sacrificially, to the point of exhaustion, doing this good works as God strengthens you for that. Friend, be encouraged in that. But friend, maybe you're a Christian and you're not engaged in ongoing service. I also want to encourage you to think about what we see in the Bible is that, that we do these acts of service for the good of others, sometimes in the life of the church, sometimes outwardly focused, that God is glorified in those actions and it is for our good that we serve. That we actually grow in grace and godliness, God matures us as we serve others. Even as we sacrifice, even to the point of exhaustion at times, we do so, and God is maturing us through that. So, friend, if you've not found a place to serve, we'd love to help you do that. It would be for your good and also for the good of others around you. So we see the king is anointed. And then third and last, we see the king is proclaimed, chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. Look down at chapter 10, verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. The tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. 
But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. So Samuel calls all of Israel together. He first gives them a word from God reminding them that God had brought them out of Egypt, delivered them from them and from all other enemies. But now they were rejecting him by saying, give us a king. So Samuel brought all the people and they used this uh, casting of lots to separate the people. So they separate first the tribe of Benjamin. So it's narrowed down just to Benjamin. And then from within that, this clan, the Matrites. Then it's narrowed down to this one person, Saul, the son of Kish. But we see in the text, they couldn't find him. Was he lost? Was the man who had lost the donkeys lost? No, he actually wasn't lost at all. It was much worse than that. So we see in the text, they inquire of the Lord. They ask the Lord, where is he? Where is our king? Is he about to show up on a, a great, powerful horse? Is he making some dramatic entrance? Look at verse 22. They inquire of the Lord. The Lord says, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. It, it's humorous. It's ridiculous. I was thinking this week of across the Bible, we again and again hear the word of the Lord. Behold, and really important things are said. Behold, you shall be with child. And here, the most ridiculous of all the statements. What would seem to be the most unnecessary. Behold, he's hiding in the baggage. So they went, and they got Saul. It's sort of like, imagine with me that you were going to pick up a friend of a friend who you don't know personally at Logan Airport. And it's going to be at, at Logan uh, uh, Terminal B, uh, American Airlines, where I don't know, down there by the ice cream, there's always this huge amount of luggage that's there someone's luggage. I'm not sure whose it is, but it's always a bunch of luggage there. And so you're there waiting on them, and, and you're looking around for this person you think you're meeting, you think you might know what they look like, but you're, you're texting, you can't find, you look and look, and then finally, you happen to look over in the baggage, and all the baggage is no more than about this tall, and you see behind one of the pieces of baggage, a grown man kind of kneeling down behind it, but he's a really tall grown man who can't hide behind it. I mean, it's, it's, you're like, what is he doing? And then when you finally go up to him and he stands up, he's taller than anyone in the room. You're like, oh, well, hey, let's go. And you leave. Well, that's sort of what's going here. They're looking, where's the king? We're finally going to get a king. He's hiding in the luggage. And when they finally recognize him, he stands up and he towers over everyone. So why is this big, impressive guy hiding? Is, Paul, is Saul humble? It seems to initially appear that way, but 
think about it. He's been anointed by God. He was given all those signs affirming this anointing. It seems less that he's humble and more that he's lacking in character. Lacking the courage to walk forward in the call that has been placed on his life. We see verse 24, all the people shout, long live the king. Samuel begins to send the people home. But then we see verse 27, some oppose Saul. They say, how can this man save us? The words they spoke are truer than they realized that day. For Saul will be the king they wanted, but not the king they truly need. For we'll see in coming weeks his failures, and even beyond him, the kings after him, none of them will truly be the king God's people need. So they say, how can this man save us? These are similar words to what we hear as Jesus Christ hung upon the cross. Some skeptics said to Jesus, if, he, if he's the king, let him come down from the cross. Let him save himself and save us if he really can. Implied, he can't save us. How could he save us? Of course, Jesus would not come down in order that he might save. In order to save, Jesus chooses to stay on the cross. Not to save himself, but by staying on the cross, he might save sinners and rebels like us. Friends, that's the true king. If you're a Christian, that's your king who can save us. Saul was an ineffective, inept shepherd, lacking in skillfulness of tracking down those he came for. Friends, Jesus is the true shepherd. Shepherd of the sheep who came to even lay down his life for the sheep. He finds those that he seeks and he brings them home. Friends, that's your king. See, the Saul hid from his calling, hid in the baggage. Friends, Jesus did not hide from his calling. He set his face to go to Jerusalem knowing what was to come. He did not back down, but continued all the way through suffering death in order that he might save. Friends, that's your king. That's our king. He doesn't back off. He doesn't hide. He perseveres out of love in order that he might save us. As we mentioned, Saul was outwardly impressive. Tall, wealthy, handsome. And friends, we think about a worldview that we'd like to have in greater Boston. I think most of us would like to have a, an impressive worldview. At the very least, a worldview that would not be mocked. Maybe a worldview that would fit in, wouldn't seem ridiculous. Except, friends, in fact, the Christian worldview has always been scandalous. Because our hope, our faith is in a king who died. And belief in a resurrected king. There's nothing respectable about this worldview. But make no mistake, friends, it is true, and it is saving, and it is powerful. And so we'll have to choose, do I want an impressive, acceptable in our city worldview, or I would say, there is no other worldview, no other Savior, no other King but Jesus. And so though it's scandalous, though it's out of step, though it might be mocked, 
this is the king who can save. This is the king who has saved. So trust in him. Friends, trust in your king who did that for rebels like us. Trust your king today. Trust him tomorrow. Let's trust him this week.